So here we are. We've reached the final section of Genesis, a road that started quite a few years ago. And we've been breaking it up as the years go by. But here we are, the very last section of Genesis that we're looking at this morning. Genesis, the first book in the Bible. Today, the last chapter of the first book. And like the page of, or the final page of many, many books, Genesis has a sort of happily ever after ending to it. Claire and I read very, very different books. We're, we're very different people. That's the best, the best kind of marriages work with opposites, opposites attract and all that. We read, we read very, very different kind of books. On holiday, I take with me these kind of books, The, the Defense of the Realm, History of MI5. That was fantastic. This was not quite as interesting, but MI6. Matt and I share a, a like of these kind of books. Claire reads different books, Karen Kingsbury. Lucy's also a fan of Karen Kingsbury. <laughs> And they're, they're very, very different. And the last books, the last pages of the books I read tend to be fairly dull. That the summaries is kind of summary of, of facts and, and historical stuff and what have you. Whereas the kind of books Claire reads tend to finish with a happily ever after ending. The, the Christian guy gets the Christian girl and they all go off into the sunset. It's all lovely. It's all great. And the end of Genesis is a little bit like that. It's a nice happily ever after ending to this great epic uh, account from creation right the way through to Joseph's death in Egypt. And the last section of Genesis that we've been working through these last few weeks has been about the life of Joseph, his brothers, and their father Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And, they, and it, it, it kind of records for us how they end up down there in Egypt living and how the, 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 the nation of Israel finds itself in Egypt and sets itself up for Exodus 400 years later. Joseph at this stage, was the second most powerful man on the planet. He was the prime minister. He was the sort of number two in charge of Egypt. Egypt was the superpower of the day. And his brothers, now that Jacob died, and we're going to look at that this morning, Jacob died and his brothers, his 11 brothers, realized how vulnerable they were to their younger brother, um, Joseph. They knew all of the stuff that they'd done to him in the past, and they realized just how vulnerable now that dad wasn't around to protect them. And with their father, Jacob, dead, Joseph's 11 brothers were really worried what Joseph would do to them, whether his attitude towards them would change and whether he would seek to get his revenge for all they'd done to him. And and, and they had really good reason to fear him because they had ruined, they had utterly ruined his life. Joseph had every reason to want revenge on them for all the things that they'd done to him. And they knew that. So we're going to read this final passage this morning. Uh, It's Genesis chapter 50. If you've got a Bible, you can turn with me. Genesis 50, and we're going to read from 14 to 26. If you haven't got a Bible, that's fine. You can just listen as I read it, uh, or you can pretend to read it on your phone. (laughs) Genesis 50, verse 14. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who'd gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. And also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So Joseph's brothers were desperately trying to protect themselves from the revenge that they feared might happen, reasonably so, after all that they'd done to Joseph. Because just just think for a little bit uh, about what they had done to him. And and all the verses today that we're looking at are on your outline, on the reverse of the um, bulletins. If you want to pick that up, all the verses are there. They'll be up on the screen as well. But just think a little bit about what they had done to him during his life. As a teenager, Joseph grew up, knew it, knowing that his brothers absolutely hated him. They despised him. Genesis 37 verse 4 says this, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph grew up knowing that his ten older brothers hated him and they made their hostility known to him. He, he was in no doubt how they felt about him. They could not speak a kind word to him, it says. And their hatred grew into this desire to kill him. It grew and it grew and it grew. And that's what hatred does if it's left unchecked. When Joseph went out to meet them one day with a message from his father Jacob, as they saw him, his brothers, as they saw him approaching, his brothers decided they wanted to kill him. Look what it says. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. And when you read these verses over and over again, perhaps as many as, of, as many of us have done, the the kind of enormity of what's actually being said sort of washes over you because you're familiar with the story. But these are his brothers. They hate him passionately and they want him dead. They want to kill him. They decide they're going to kill him. And the only reason they don't is because two of the brothers, Reuben and Judah, intervene and they prevent it from happening. But he still ends up being sold. And Joseph witnessed all this happening. He was there as he he listened to their, their hatred towards him and their desire to kill him. Can you imagine what that must have been like? knowing that his brothers hated him so much that they were they prepared to kill him. That's what they'd intended to do. That was their plan A. They were going to kill him. Imagine what that must have been like. And instead of killing him in cold blood, which is what they intended to do, and they ended up selling him as a slave to slave traders. Genesis 37, 28 says this, So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. It's difficult to imagine what it must have been like for Joseph to experience that. Presumably he was tied up in some way. He was a prisoner taken off down to Egypt by slave traders. To be sold into slavery by your brothers. That would deeply scar, I think, most of us, wouldn't it? And I guess Joseph lived with those emotional, mental, psychological scars. And when Joseph got to Egypt, he was sold to Potiphar. And then once again, he found himself in this horrendous situation where he's accused of a crime that he didn't commit. Having tried and failed to seduce him, Potiphar's wife made up this story that he'd attacked her. And as we read in Genesis 39 verse 20, it says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. 
And then after spending a number of years in prison, Joseph interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker. And he must have hoped that having got those dreams right and he asked to be remembered to Pharaoh, he must have hoped maybe this was the end of his imprisonment. Maybe this was the beginning of his life. It's going to take a turn for the better. Then Genesis 40 verse 23 says this, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. What a miserable life. What an absolute nightmare. It's just horrendous, isn't it? As I say, the, the kind of reality sort of washes over us because we're familiar, probably most of us, with the story. But it must have been awful for Joseph. Hated by his brothers, almost killed in cold blood, and then sold as a slave, falsely accused by his owner's wife, wrongly imprisoned, and then forgotten about, left to rot in a dungeon. And it's about as bad as it gets. I'm sure there's people who've had worse lives, but this is pretty bad. This is pretty much up there with it, isn't it? The hurt and the pain and the trauma of what had happened to him wouldn't have gone away. That would have been so difficult for him to live with. It was all caused by these brothers. And it's easy to understand, therefore, why his brothers were desperate to protect themselves once Jacob had died. And they make up, I don't think Jacob really said, uh, uh, go and speak to your brothers. And they made this up. They were desperately trying to protect themselves from what they feared that Joseph might do to them. But look at what Joseph says to them. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Wow, what a response to a horrendous situation. Joseph expresses his belief and his trust in God's sovereignty. In other words, Joseph believed that God is always in control, that God never loses control of situations, and that God is always working his purposes out. That's what God's sovereignty means. It means that God is always in control, he never loses control of situations, and he's always working his purposes out in people's lives and through their lives for others. Joseph believed that God was at work in and through his problems and his situations, as terrible and as awful as they were, to achieve God's purposes and his plans. And Joseph was able to see that despite his brother's evil intentions towards him, God had been at work all the time through those situations. And he was turning those situations from bad into good. His brothers intended to harm him, but God intended what happened to be turned and to be used for good. Specifically, the provision of famine relief, the saving of many lives, including his family, and of course, ultimately, in saving and rescuing that family from whom would come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the great lion of the tribe of Judah that Ryan was talking about last week. And God has chosen to preserve these words of Joseph to his brothers to teach all of us who would trust him right throughout history, including us today, that God is in control. God never loses control of our situations and our circumstances. But more than that, God is at work in them and through them, and he is achieving his plans and his will through our situations and our circumstances. But it's all very well for Joseph to say this when everything had come good for Joseph. Joseph's life had been truly awful, but it had a happy ending. They all lived happily ever after. It was a nice ending. Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world. He had probably all the wealth he could ever need, everything he could ever need. His life had been horrendous, but now it was good. Joseph was able to profess his trust and his faith in God at a point in his life when everything was good. 
And he was looking at the difficult times in his life from the vantage of hindsight. He was able to look back and say, well, yeah, that was horrendous at the time, but I can see now that God was at work. But it's easier to do that, isn't it, when everything's good and we've come through those difficult times and we're now in a time of blessing. It's not so easy to do when we haven't come out of that good time, of that bad time. It's not so easy to, to do when there isn't a happy ending. What if Joseph had never been released from prison? What if he'd spent the rest of his life rotting away in a dungeon just as many followers of Jesus experience today in some countries? And we've thought about that this morning. Hundreds of thousands of our brothers and sisters imprisoned, facing death for their faith. No happy endings. No fairy tales. Most of us will go through difficult times in life. And some of us will go through those difficult times and will come out the other side. And we'll be able to look back like Joseph and see God at work. But there'll also be times when we'll look back on unpleasant experiences and we will be unable to see any obvious point to what was happening. The situations in my life, and I'm sure probably for many of you, and some of you still in those situations today, and you, whilst you, you, you trust in God, there's, there's no obvious point to what's happened. You can't make any sense of that. Joseph got the fairy tale ending. They all lived happily ever after. But that's not how it often works out for those that follow Jesus. It just often doesn't work that way. Many followers of Jesus have to face incredible problems and suffering in their lives. And they never see a happy ending. That cancer never goes away. That the, the relative dies. That the job doesn't get restored. They still face great problems. The family, the marriage doesn't come back together. The kids don't return. And maybe you're here today and you're experiencing all sorts of problems and suffering in your life. And there's just no sign of a happy ending. It would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to be like Joseph. But maybe for you right now, there is just no happy ending in sight. So what are we to make of the suffering and problems that we face? Is God only in control and working for our good, as Joseph said, when we get the fairy tale endings? It's great when that happens. It's great when we get the fairy tale ending. But what happens when we don't? Is God still good all the time? We say it, God is good all the time. We sing it. But is that still true when we don't get the fairy tale ending? Do we still believe that? Is God still in control when life doesn't end up with the fairy tale ending? Does God still intend our problems for good? even when our problems don't go away and they never get any better. As we experience suffering and problems, I think it's really important that we know and we grasp and we understand what the Bible has to say on this issue. And as we read through the Bible, I think we can see seven reasons why we face problems and suffering in our lives. And I've listed them on your outlines for you. And we're just going to work the way, our way through them this morning. And hopefully as we look into them in a little bit, just a little bit of depth this morning, we can see what the Bible has to say about why do we experience hardship and suffering. So that we're better able to respond to those situations when they're happening. Because if they're not happening now, they will happen at some point for most of us in our lives. Well, firstly, the Bible teaches us that we experience hardships and suffering because we live in a fallen world. We go right back to the beginning of Genesis. We see that, as, as we looked at a few years ago, that because Adam and Eve sinned right there in the garden, Sin, en sin entered into the world 
and through sin, death came. And, and Paul teaches that in Romans 5. Through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners. And through his sin, death came. And so we all experience sin. We're born in sin. We sin and we experience death because of the sin of Adam. And all the problems we face in life ultimately can be traced right back to the disobedience of that one man. Because Adam and Eve fell, we're still living with the consequences of that to to this day in, in, in all sorts of different ways. And we'll have to continue to live with the hardship and suffering until Jesus comes again. Until he brings an end to all suffering and all death and hardship for those that love him. In Revelation, we read about that day when Jesus will come and will rule and reign and there will be an end to death and to suffering and to mourning. But until then, we have to live with the consequences of what Adam and Eve did, knowing that we were in Adam when he sinned. And knowing that whilst there isn't always a happily ever ending, there isn't always a happily ever after ending in this life, there will be one in eternity. Knowing that, knowing that this life is tough, this life is difficult, but there is a happily ever after ending when we get to heaven, when we all see Jesus, if we love him, if we, if we know him and if we've surrendered our lives to him, when he comes, there'll be no more sin, no more death, we'll be made like Jesus and be with him forever. And knowing that gives us the strength to keep going and to persevere through those hardships and through those sufferings. Secondly, the Bible teaches us that we sometimes experience hardship and suffering because of other people's sin. All of these things are kind of interrelated. But Joseph said to his brothers, you intended to harm me. It wasn't, Joseph wasn't experiencing what he was experiencing because of something he'd done wrong, although Joseph was a sinner. But it was because his brothers were sinful. It was they who intended to harm him. And this side of heaven, we sadly have to live with the reality and the fact that we live in a fallen world that's full of fallen people who sin against each other. And sometimes we'll get in the way of other people's sinful behavior. And we have to live with those scars and the consequences of what other people sadly do to us. But again, we can trust God that he will bring justice to those situations when Jesus comes again. When Jesus comes, he will bring justice and he will rule and reign in righteousness and justice. And every wrong that's been done to us will be put right. And we can trust that either that's been put right because the person who sinned against us has been forgiven of their sins because Jesus has dealt with that on the cross, or Jesus will judge that person if they've never trusted in him and will deal with them in a righteous way and pour out his wrath upon them. We can trust God to bring justice to our situations. The third reason is that the Bible teaches us that we experience hardships and suffering because of our own sin. Actions have consequences. And when we trust in Jesus, and if you've yet to do that today, then I'd really encourage you to to give your life to Jesus, to surrender your life to him, to experience that love and forgiveness and grace and mercy that God offers us, that eternal life, that relationship with God, forgiveness of all our sins. And it's fantastic that that when we trust in Jesus, we get that. Jesus forgives all our sins, past, present, and future, but he doesn't remove the human consequences this side of heaven. We have to live with the consequences of our own sin. For instance, if a man is unfaithful to his wife but then repents and asks God to forgive him, of course he's forgiven. But the man will still have to live with the damage that he's done. And that may mean his marriage ends, his family falls apart, he spends the rest of his life on his own. Our our actions have consequences. And we have to face up to that. If I sin, I'm going to have to deal with the consequences of that. And sometimes God is gracious and removes the consequences of those things. 
generally not. And we have to live with the reality. And rather than blaming God or others for our problems, we have to take responsibility for our actions when they are the cause of our hardships and suffering. Because some of the hardships and suffering we face in life will be the, act, the consequences of our own sinful behavior. The fourth reason is that sometimes we'll find ourselves experiencing hardships and suffering because we're under attack from Satan and demonic forces. Peter says this, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. As followers of Jesus, we have a real and literal enemy who hates God and who hates us if we love Jesus. And he'll do all that he can to attack and destroy all that is good. He's called the thief that comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But when this happens, when Satan attacks us and kills and steals and destroys, and we experience that in our lives, God hasn't lost control. God is still sovereign. And he's able to and does use the enemy's attacks upon us for our ultimate good and for his glory. It's difficult for us to understand, but it's possible for, on the one hand, for us to be, to be experiencing suffering and hardships caused by Satan, and on the other hand, for God still to be at work. God is sovereign. He never, use, he never loses control. You know, Christians tend to do one of either two things when it comes to Satan. Either we start looking for him under every bush, and every time I stub my toenail, I blame Satan and its demonic forces and this, that, and the other, and we blame him for everything, and we give him way too much attention. That's one extreme we need to avoid. The other extreme, which is typical here in the West and is typical of us generally culturally in our kind of churches, is that we ignore Satan and we don't take him seriously enough. And we and our families and our churches and our ministries end up seriously wounded by him because we don't realize that we're in a, a battle every second of the day, a spiritual battle. C.S. Lewis said, every inch of the universe is claimed by, is claimed by Satan and is counterclaimed by God. And we are, we are cosmic foot soldiers, Philip Yancey writes, in this great battle between good and evil. God has already won, but we are still in that battle. D-Day, 6th of June, 1944, the Allies stormed ashore and the, the war was effectively over. But there was still another 18 months of fighting. And Hitler had a scorched earth policy where he destroyed everything he could as the Allies from east and west advanced Satan is just like that. He knows the battle is over. Jesus has won. The victory is done. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. He's risen from the dead. But Satan is on a scorched earth policy, and he will destroy whatever he can. So what is the solution to that? It's called spiritual warfare. It's prayer. We need to come together to pray. Our church prayer meeting is the very heart of spiritual warfare. If you're at the church prayer meeting, you're engaged in spiritual warfare. That's what we're coming to do. And there's no getting around, there's no making it easier or avoiding the fact that when we come together to pray, it, it, sometimes it's hard work. That's because we're engaging in spiritual warfare. And I don't understand it. There's much mystery about prayer, but there is stuff happening in the spiritual realms when we pray. And we need to come together. We need to come together. There's a prayer meeting next Sunday night. Come and engage in spiritual warfare. Come and fight those fights in the heavenly realms. So often we, we are so complacent and we don't realize that we're in a battle and we need to fight that battle. Jesus has won, but there's still every inch of this universe claimed and counterclaimed and we need to do our bit 
and we do that through prayer, amongst other things. The fifth reason that I can find in the Bible for God allowing hardships and, and suffering in our lives is to show whether our faith is genuine or not. Peter writes these words, For a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter's saying that if a person has genuinely trusted in Jesus, if they've genuinely been born again, not just that they say they have, but if they've genuinely been born again, then even though they may have all sorts of doubts and questions and fears, they will keep on trusting Jesus through sufferings and hardships. They may be just clinging on by their fingertips. They may have all sorts of questions and struggles and issues, but they're still clinging on, they're persevering, they're putting their faith and trust in Jesus. Whereas if a person hasn't really trusted in Jesus, despite perhaps publicly saying they have, maybe they even thought they have, maybe they've been baptized, they've, they've joined a church, they're playing an active part in church life. If they haven't really truly been trusted in Jesus and been born again, then when they experience suffering and grief and trials, Peter says, they will turn away from God. See, the person who is genuinely trusted in Jesus and has surrendered their life to God and has been born again, that person will persevere and endure through these trials. If their faith is genuine, they will keep going. They won't turn away from God, and they won't abandon their faith. If a person's been truly born again, they're secure forever. And the trials we go through will, will reveal, Peter says here, whether that person's claim to saving faith is really genuine and true. So God allows hardships and suffering to reveal whether our faith is genuine and authentic. And when God does that, it might seem, well, that's not very nice, that's not very pleasant, but actually God is being merciful to us. Because the last thing we want to do is go through life fooling ourselves into thinking that we have been born again and we're forgiven when we've never really trusted in Jesus. God sometimes allows hardship and suffering to reveal to a person whether their faith is, not, is genuine or not. And so give them that opportunity to put that right. The sixth reason we face problems and hardships is because God sometimes using them as a discipline to get us to turn away from our sins and to live a more holy life. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read about people in the church in Corinth who were coming together to worship God. And as they shared the bread and the wine in communion, whilst on the one hand proclaiming their unity as one people, one loaf, Paul says, it speaks of our unity as, they, as we take bread together. On the other hand, they were sinning against each other. And Paul was saying, look, you can't on the one hand sin against your Christian brother and sister and at the same time sit in the, change, in, the, in the same church service and take bread and wine together and proclaiming your unity. You can't take the bread and the wine, which is partly symbolizing our unity in Jesus, and at the same time be sinning against another brother or sister in Jesus. And so Paul says that to bring some of these people in Corinth back to their senses, God had allowed some of them to get sick. It was discipline from God. And because some of them had refused to respond to God's discipline, they had died. This is serious stuff. Look at what he says. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Serious stuff. Now, it's important to understand that discipline is not the same as punishment. Discipline and punishment are not, the two, are not the same things. If a person has trusted in Jesus genuinely, truly, then Jesus has taken all the punishment for their sins. There is no more punishment for sin if we've put our faith in Jesus. Discipline is not punishment. Discipline is God allowing hardships and suffering to come into our lives 
and to bring us to our senses so that we turn away from a sinful style of living and we turn away from sin and instead we begin to live in a way that pleases God. That's not always the reason why we have hardships and suffering, but it is sometimes. God sometimes allows hardships and suffering in our lives to bring us to our senses so that we turn away from sin and start living in a way that pleases God. And so when we experience hardships and suffering, whatever the kind they might be, it's, it's always good to ask ourselves if there is a sin that we need to repent of. I would suggest that this is a, probably a, a rare situation. I don't, think God, I don't think our illnesses and our problems and situations in life are usually God disciplining us for sin, but it might be. 1 Corinthians 11 is proof of that. So we should ask ourselves, this situation I'm in right now, is this God disciplining me? Is God trying to get my attention? Is there an unconfessed sin? Is there something I need to repent of so that I might once again live in a way that pleases him? This isn't about punishment. This is God disciplining those he loves. And the seventh reason, lastly, is because God disciplines us to help us become more like Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his sons. For what son is not disciplined by their father? God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So when we experience hardship and suffering, it may be because God is disciplining us for our good in order to help us become more like Jesus. The discipline is painful at the time, but its end goal is that we live lives that look more like Jesus. And if you look at this whole section in Hebrews, you'll see that God's discipline, the writer argues, is a sign of his love. He wouldn't be a loving God if he didn't discipline us. That's the argument. And human parents, the, the, the writer argues about human parents, and he says the same. Human parents, if they love their children, they discipline them. And human parents don't leave their children to grow up as they please, do they? They discipline them and they train them up. And parents who don't discipline their kids ends up with, end up with monsters. When Naomi was born, we used to rock her off to sleep at night until we realized that she wouldn't go off to sleep unless we rocked her off to sleep. So we realized we kind of made a mistake there. So we needed to put her through a period of discipline to break that dependency on us, Claire, rocking her off to sleep so that she could go off to sleep on her own. And so we had a few of what we might call fight nights where she screamed and she screamed. But eventually, even though she didn't like it and neither did we, she'd been disciplined to go off to sleep on her own painful at the time for her and for us for our ears but it was for her long-term good and for ours it, it wouldn't be great if we still had to 17 years later still rock Naomi <laughs> off to sleep at night what we sometimes see as unpleasant and difficult as we experience it is actually can actually be a sign of God's love for us he loves us as we are but he refuses to leave us that way he wants the best for us he wants us to be more like Jesus and so when we face hardships and suffering, it's good to ask ourselves, is God trying to teach me something? Is God using my situation to help me grow? When we experience hardships and suffering, the reason behind it might be any one of those seven reasons. Quite often it's a combination of those reasons. It might be more than one and it often is. What we can say for absolute certain is that whichever of those seven reasons it is that lies behind the hardships and the suffering that we're experiencing... God is still in control. Whatever the reason, God is still sovereign. God is still in control. Paul says this in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, 
God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God is at work in all things to make us look more like Jesus. That's Paul's argument here, Romans 8, 28. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not in some things, not in just the nice things, but in all things, even the horrible things. That's what Paul says. God works for our good if we love him. In other words, God is at work in the situations of our lives to help us become more and more like Jesus. And in addition to us growing more like Jesus, God is also at work achieving his wider plans and purposes, just as he did through Joseph. God was at work through the evil actions of his brothers to help Joseph grow spiritually, but also to create a way in which famine relief would be provided right across the Middle East, and ultimately, many lives would be saved, and ultimately, the life of Jacob's family, this chosen family. So when we face problems and suffering in our lives, we're called to believe that God's word teaches us that in all things, God is working for our good and he's working for the good of others. In all things. That's a really tough thing to ask. That's a really tough thing to believe. Because sometimes life is so incredibly difficult. Sometimes, like Joseph, there'll be a happy ending for us. And we'll be able to look back and we'll be able to see, well, I can understand now why God allowed this and that to happen because now this and this is better than that. If that happens, God bless you. But often it doesn't. Sometimes we will never understand why we've experienced the hardship and suffering that we have until we get to heaven. John says, when we see him, we shall be like him. And When we get to heaven, the old hymn says, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout for victory. But until then, we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm going to finish this morning and finish our series in Genesis by reading the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, chapter 4. He says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Ryan and the band are going to lead us. Thank you, Ryan.